buckle up for all new tales of conquest. If I go out, I want to leave a good-looking corpse. And catastrophe. He used the words C5 quadriplegic. The hit Vice Wrestling Series returns. Dark Side of the Ring, Season 4. New season premieres Tuesday, May 30th at 10 on Vice. A random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome everyone to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string, we are joined with the producer of Dark Side of the Ring, Tales from the Territories, also the host of the podcast One Effing Minute, and believe me, I didn't mean effing, but also a whole bunch of other things. He's the uh, founder of the Patreon page, the Blogspot page, Power Comics, among many others, Evan Husney. Evan, good evening. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. How's it going? Pretty, pretty good. So we saw you at uh, Big Apple Comic Con over in New York City, and right off the bat, uh, you were on your hunt for Golden Age books, and <laughs> what did you leave with? Uh, wow, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was cool. I mean, I, over the last like year and a half, you know, I, I've I've always been into comics. You know, I've always been into, you know, with like uh, what I do on Power Comics, uh, looking into weird, finding weird, esoteric, unloved, you know, small press, um, self-published kind of weird comics from the 70s and 80s, um, it sort of morphed into like a weird um, obsession with Golden Age comics because they, they do share a lot of the same traits. It's, 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 still, it's like they're both artists trying to figure out the media, you know, is kind of the thing that, that links both of that. And so I really got into Golden Age comics just because I, I'm just really drawn to the art. You know, the art is really wobbly. It's not refined. It's very bizarre. The ideas are unfiltered. And it's also very historic. Like I, I'm, I'm really into the you know World War II era Golden Age comics, um, especially just for the history behind that. But um, I, uh, to answer your question, I wound up leaving with I think it was a Pep Comics. What was it? I think it was a Pep Comics 33 at the top of my head. Um, it's a very bizarre World War II cover where you have uh, the heroes of MLJ Comics. If anybody's familiar with the MLJ. Uh, heroes of the 1940s, but uh, it basically depicted um, uh, a Nazi Viking on the cover. <laughs> so it's not something you see every day. Uh, and that's just what kind of um, alerts me to the World War II books. It's just like the crazy wartime, you know, rallying against, you know, the access forces. And you'd, you'd see some pretty bizarre imagery depicted on those books. And that was definitely one of them. Before the word mashup was even a word. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about, like, the 1970s, 1980s power comics and the connection between, Mar you know, the Golden Age era. One of the ones that I go with instantaneously is the work of Fletcher Hanks, like characters like Stardust. And right. there, there is definitely a parallel between the two. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, Fletcher Hanks is, uh, you know, one of the coolest interior artists of the uh, Golden Age. 
you know, he didn't really do many, he didn't do, I don't even know if he ever did a cover in any of the comics before, which is a shame because I would have loved to have seen what a Fletcher Hanks uh, Golden Age comic cover would have looked like. But yeah, his style was very out there, very surreal, very kinetic and imaginative and wild because a lot of the interior, um, you know, work in a lot of these Golden Age books aren't nearly as interesting as the cover art. Um, and a lot of the best, Golden Age cover artists didn't didn't ever do interior work. <laughs> it's very rare. So, um, but like you know, Fletcher Hanks has a very unique, singular style that definitely um, you know has aged into some of the coolest and pine you know just most visually interesting of the Golden Age. And um, you'll find a lot of his work. It's actually been collected now through uh, Fancy Graphics has put out a bunch of the collections of Fletcher Hanks' stuff. But if you want to get the real deal. You got to hunt down those early issues of uh, like Jungle Comics and I think Fight Comics. Fantastic um, comics and Stardust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's where you'll see Stardust and Fantoma. A lot of the creations that he did is in those early Fight and Jungle comics, and they are pricey. But you know, it's so cool to see them like you know in the actual printing of the 1940s and early early 1940s. I'm actually on his uh, Wikipedia page right now because I was going to pull up the names of the uh, Fantagraphics books, but I'm looking at the titles of stories of uh, the Stardust ones, one of which I can't say out loud in a uh, public... Uh, it, it, it's, it is very not uh, politically correct, <laughs> so I can't say yeah, that you one. you find a lot of that in the era, yeah. Hachi machi. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's funny because, like, a lot of those stories, you know, they have what is, you know the frustrations and struggles and you you hear the story about Fletcher Hanks which are you know they mention them I think in the end of uh, the books of I shall destroy all the civilized planets exclamation point by the way because you gotta have that right and you shall die by your own evil creation exclamation point but they're both they are both fantastic and I know uh, they actually did a they combined both into one big omnibus called turn loose our death rays and destroy them all also exclamation point but right it is uh it's funny because like the way the stories are too like they flow super fast they're not like you know the stan lee era where all right true believer i'm gonna give everyone a word balloon in this panel even the mailman in the back and we're just gonna go do this enough said and clearly it was not enough said because everyone has like you know a soliloquy for each board balloon but yeah. i digress <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah it's great stuff i, I definitely encourage anybody interested in the weirder side of comics, especially at the dawn of comics. You know, Fletcher Hanks is one of the coolest, uh, you know, interior artists. And I also kind of link him with um, with um, Basil Wolverton, too, you know, um, another kind of outsider, singular artist who, who did it. He, he actually did do a handful of comic book covers back in the 40s and 50s. But, I mean, his interior art, I mean, he's, in my opinion, the best interior artist uh, in comics. Um, you know, pre-Silver Age. You know, I mean, he really is, I think, the most imaginative and has the most amazing style, and his stuff is incredible. And it's funny, too, you just mentioned uh, Basil Wolverton, the uh, character of uh, Lena the Hyena, who makes uh, her first appearance in the page in the comic strip Lil Abner, so... Yeah. You wouldn't expect that. Not whatsoever. But in regards to a lot of the public, you know, these comics, they're public domain, too, for the most part. And, you know, you'll yep. see, like, Fletcher Hanks's work. Like, you know, when I saw you at the con, I, I you know, briefly mentioned, I'm like, I would love to do a Stardust comic because I feel like, you know, I don't think it would be on par with, you know, the lunacy that, you know, you could pull off with the character from back then because 
he literally pulls out their skeletons for a bunch of mobsters and shows them to them. And it's like, (laughs) that's a plot point. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, no, it's a cool thing that like a lot of those golden age, you know, like the non-DC, non-timely slash Marvel, you know, um, characters are public domain or the rights are very loose. And, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities there for somebody, uh, you know, to come in and, and really make a cool movie even. Or to like say like you know here's a really crazy you know character from the 40s let's like bring him and do like a low budget you know exploitation movie or something based on the on the character I think there's there's also room for that too which would be super fun to see and that's the magic of copyrights you know like eventually you know I think within the next isn't it like five or so years like Mickey Mouse like that interpretation from the 1920s from uh, Steamboat Willie that's going to be in the public domain that interpretation wow. so yeah that's crazy. There's going to be reinventions of that one, just like we had with, you know, Winnie the Pooh, like where they made the Blood and Honey movie, which, okay. Right, <laughs> so, right, 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 yeah, exactly. And it's funny, too, because, like, you look at uh, the people utilizing these uh, public domain characters. Eric Larson uses the hell out of Daredevil. And when I say Daredevil, I'm not talking about Matt Murdock, the man without fear. I'm talking about Daredevil who has like a half blue, half red costume. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the coolest costumes in comics. And like to be able to use that character in modern comics, mind you with the changing of the name as daring devil, which who is that fooling? But you know, what are you right. going to do? Right. Yeah. That's the uh, Lev Gleason publications creation uh, of daredevil from the 1940s. Uh, again, lots of really cool world war two crazy covers also. Um, uh, from that from that run, from that original Daredevil run. There's actually one issue. I can't remember the issue number, but there's a – I could probably send it to you, but there's a uh, there, <laughs> there's a Daredevil cover that depicts torture, like a woman being tortured, and the, the, the method of torture – a lot of torture covers in the Golden Age, but the methodology of torture in this one is actually um, – she's being, like, tickled. <laughs> and it's tickle torture cover from like the forties. That's really messed up. It, it's so, interesting because like I'll yeah. look at old you know golden age books and I'll like see the CGC yeah. ones and they'll have the little notes like story by so and so da 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 and then they'll put little things and I I don't know if I've asked this on the show to someone before but maybe you'll know but like they'll, oh, yeah. they'll put in something on there as a note. There's a cover of Detective Comics where there's a guy, a, do- a mad scientist holding a syringe as Batman yeah. is bonded. Mm-hmm. And it specifically points out on the uh, little uh, thing up top, syringe cover. Hypodermic needle, yeah, uh, yes. hypodermic needle cover, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so weird yeah. that that gets pointed out. It's like, okay, that's a needle. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> like, why is that? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say the perception from then versus now is drastically different. And when you looked yeah. at it back then, it was at face value, oh, it's a cartoon. It's not serious. It's not any semblance of real. It doesn't have anything practical application to now. You know, now we're, we're hyper-analyzing and stuff, things. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a different mindset and, again, perception. Why which is, is Eddie wearing that color shirt? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's a nice so, shirt, though, Eddie. Looks good. <laughs> but before I well, totally, I think, yeah. I think the reason for the hypodermic needle... Um, sort of thing, because there are a lot of them, okay? There's probably, oh, man, there's probably 50-plus, like, like hypodermic needle covers, probably more. That's probably an understatement. There's, there's a lot of them, and the one you're talking about is Detective Comics number 35, 
which is um, a great cover. I love that cover. But um, I, I think hypodermic needle covers were very, you know, risque and, and, and pretty crazy and pretty gnarly for the time to show, like, someone being injected. And you see a lot of different covers of people being injected with various different things that are not good, like cyanide or, you know, other crazy things. And I think that um, because it was such a trope at, during that time, I think people started to just collect them, you know, like in the 60s and 70s. And so I think people having these, like, hypodermic needle covers or bondage covers, that's probably the most uh, famous one. You know, you see there's hundreds and hundreds of bondage covers in the Golden Age. So I think people just collected those. And then I think when it came time for them to be graded and to be acknowledged, it's like, oh, here's a classic hypodermic needle cover or a classic bondage cover. There's just tons of them. And it's pretty crazy because a lot of that stuff and a lot of bondage was going on in the uh, – that was their way of being very risque back in the uh, you know, 30s and 40s. Not to mention the underground comics of that time and or later, right? Right. And that's a different kind of uh, – mm-hmm. yeah, Yes, it is. <laughs> pushing the boundary much farther. Because that, I think, too, was like – with the underground stuff in particular, it was like, you know, after the comics code went away in the mid fifties and I'm sorry, when the comics code was formed in the mid fifties, you, and, and all those crazy risque covers and subject matters, you know, with stuff that EC comics was doing and everything, when that went away, things got pretty sterile for a while. And I think that, you know, with everything happening in the country, you know, the hippie movement and everything, you know, having the underground comics kind of just push even farther than ever before. Um, you know, it's totally in response to that. So, and yeah, I, it's I amazing did... to see, you know, culture reflected in, in comics, you know, throughout these different eras and generations. I just found a uh, discussion on uh, the CGC Comics Board, and one of the things that, with Detective Number 35, they're talking about it being a .5 book, and it's it's tattered. It looks like it's been through the ringer. Mind you, it's yeah. slabbed. And they're going on saying, you know, this is 2017. They're asking for uh, 7,900, sold for yeah. 59. This person's asking for 10,000. And yeah. I don't know why, but just one of the funniest comments is, wow, very nice looking .5 book. Like, I don't know why that just tickles me a little bit. It's like, <laughs> it looks like hell. Like, that's yeah. nice. Everyone does not... that. Everyone, everyone in the hobby who's buying low-grade comics like that oh, you know, it presents really well for being a .5 or a 1.0 and stuff. And, and yeah, that's very true. I mean, Detective Comics 35, I believe, is, you know, that's the first handful of appearances of Batman. I mean, it's got to be, I know it's like the fourth or fifth Batman cover. So it's pretty early. That's why it's worth so much. Yeah. And now, like, if you were to get, like, a 2.0 copy of that book, it's like 20 grand or something or maybe even more. And they, you know, they point out also this is a pre-Robin issue. So. Yeah. Yep, that's right. And that's it's, right. Robin didn't come till way later. One of the things about this era of comics, like not many people talk about them, like in the modern sense of you know the comic book community, and that's why I also want to bring you on this episode is to talk about these because I feel like they don't get the attention compared to like the Stan and Jack, mm-hmm. uh, you know the Steve Ditko, Carmen Infantino, all these different people in the 1960s mm-hmm. and 70s. But, like, there are so many great talents from that time period of the Golden Age. Like, the late, great Alan Bellman, who, you know, he was running the convention circuit all the way up to, like, literally a month before he passed away. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it's 100% true. I mean, I, I mean, we talked about Fletcher Hanks and Basil Wolverton. Some of the other, like, just, you know, heroes. I think probably my favorite, like, cartoonist 
of the era is probably Alex Schomburg, if you've ever heard of him. He's, he's uh, pretty much exclusively a cover artist. Um, he didn't really do many interior work, um, but he was uh, basically Marvel's, you know, it was called Timely Comics in the 40s. But he was basically, you know, Marvel's first big real premier cover artist. And he did hundreds of, you know, Human Torch covers, Marvel Mystery. He does, he does some Captain Americas. And his art is just absolutely insane. If you see it, it's like bright, bold, candy color, you know, very busy, um, you know, lots of really insane things on the covers, lots of torture devices, <laughs> lots of spikes, and lots of, you know, people being forced to wear masks and, you know, like really crazy, trippy stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he also drew the Human Torch. Um, you know, so well. I mean, his all the cover, all the Human Torch covers that he did are absolutely phenomenal. So he he's probably my my, my number one. But you have also people like Lou Fine, who did like you know incredible um in, both interior and cover stuff. And um, God, I mean, the list goes. On. I mean, Jack Kirby, you mentioned. I mean, you know, if you if you if you can get your hands on some of those early Captain America issues that you know Joe Simon and Jack Kirby did. Obviously, the issue, like preferably, you know, reprints or reproductions that don't have shitty modern coloring. Um, you can see what what it really looked like back in the day. I mean, that that comic work is also really ahead of its time and just amazing, amazing stuff. It kind of drives me crazy. I've, again, I've talked about it on the show before, but the whole issue of uh, facsimile editions of books. Like, I like seeing slowly we're starting to get now the facsimiles of Golden Age books. Recently, they just came out over it. The distinguished competition of uh, Wiz Comics number two, featuring the very yeah. first appearance of uh, Captain, Captain Marvel, Marvel Shazam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I like the fact that you mentioned the whole point of like the throwing modern coloring on some of these things, and it can like really mm. ruin it. Like horrible. I love that DC, and I brought it up many times, that they go out and do the exact kind of paper stock for their facsimiles. They make it, you know, like the the newsprint as opposed to like the glossy paper. That we that yep. we're so accustomed to now, you know that's yep. why like when yep. I see Marvels, I'm like, it's a facsimile and you know concept only, but otherwise like yeah. you look at DC, it's like this feels just like what it was. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's really rare to come by. I think people are just starting to realize, you know, um, like that, you know, to to try and be more true to the original coloring. You know, for example, like the best versions of the Marvel Silver Age stuff is we know what Tashin is doing. You know, Tashin is reprinting in these large format volumes like Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Avengers. And I actually own every single one of them because they're just incredible. And just like that, that is the best way. Like the paper is accurate. The coloring is accurate. Like it's got, you know, it's got everything you'd want uh, for that. And then I'm really also impressed. And I know that uh, the K-Fade, uh, shout out to the K-Fade guys. They've also covered the Folio Society stuff. Um, as well, too. I think they're overseas, and they've been doing a lot of Marvel reprint stuff, and you could actually, like, if you buy their, you know, they did, like, a collection of Captain America stuff, and it comes with a facsimile with real coloring, original reproduction of the first Captain America issue, and that's the best way to experience, uh, like, the original Captain America number one in the way it's supposed to look. That so, Captain America, I almost, yeah. I almost clarnered that whole uh, that folio when I'm like, I kind of want this one because I think like, the idea of the facsimile, <laughs> it's, worth it. it's, it's de- cool. And you know, like even like the uh, omnibus books that you know Marvel and DC come out with, 
they don't do the coloring and it, it just looks it doesn't look right yeah. you know no it's bad it's it's it, it's like it's like the equivalent in movies when you know people do like pan and scan or full screen or you know it's some sort of just real weird you know modern technology you know um, intrusion on you know because this is also like a time back when these things were made when like printing was you know we're printing things domestically and like again it's just amazing i have you know tons of golden age books and you're just looking at the quality of the printing you know the quality of the colors and how bold and crazy they are and uh, how they've held up 100 years almost later you know it's, it's just it's just incredible and so i think the way we make things now you know it's maybe too costly to do it like we did in the 40s or, or whatever but it's just the, the quality gap is just massive you know between what things were like back in the day so yeah so i always applaud when people can you know sort of find that you know doing reproductions of these only you know really cherishing the original coloring and stuff because i can't deal with the bad reproduction coloring and it actually got me into chasing down you know these golden age books that's one of the main reasons i did was because i wanted to experience them in the way that they're supposed to be um you know experienced and it's led to me you know buying some very expensive <laughs> issues of captain america <laughs> you know like i have a captain america number five that i have just raw like you know because i just love the interiors of that book so much and it's low grade, the cover is detached and everything, but it's just a great reader copy. And, you know, there isn't any real other edition of that that you're going to find anywhere that has the original color treatment. But are you so. wearing gloves when you read this? That's an important question. <laughs> nah. Oh, then I'm, it's really, I'm, yeah. Then it's just let me go. Well, I know back to when you said unloved that you were looking for and stuff, and that could take two different meanings because it could have been stuff that was discarded, not paid attention to, and really ragtag, torn, and stuff like that. Although in Peter's case, when it's not golden, but it's more recent, it's more well-loved because it was read over and over and, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So there's a, your your perspe- perspective will determine what you think of loved or unloved or, you know, that kind of but but going back to also you said Evan finding a 2.0 from the golden age would that be considered more of a higher you know you're not going to get too much higher grade than that for for that time period would you say well it, it depends like you know like there is like you know there there's a huge debate in comics you know I think among true comic fans on just the whole idea of grading comics in the first place versus you know just keeping them raw and being able to appreciate them you know, not encapsulated in plastic and things like that. And I, I understand arguments on both sides. And I I collect both. I mean, you know, for me, the graded side of things is like, in my mind, I've kind of made up that it's like, this is kind of like an art print. You know, this is like an original art print mm-hmm. of this cover art. Because you're really appreciating the cover. I mean, you only really can in a graded book. And at least it lets me feel better about it, knowing that the interior work on some of these golden age books are pretty bad, <laughs> you know, like on some of the, some of the non Jack Kirby Marvel for, for instance, in the forties aren't great, but the covers are just knockout. So having them in, you know, being graded to me, I can kind of justify with that. Whereas if I need some, if I want to have the interiors available, I'll have it raw. Now answering your question about the two O, you know, yeah. Like I, I just don't want something that's going to like fall apart, you know, like actually like either in the bag and board or actually in the graded slab, you know? Yeah. And that can happen. Like, you know, it really, really it does happen. So I, um, yeah, I mean, you know, like a 2.0 can be serviceable for some stuff. I like to try and find better. 
Um, you know, some of them aren't, but, you know, uh, there are people out there who, you know, are only high-grade collectors, and obviously they're super high rollers. Um, but, you know, it, it really depends on the book. Like, like that Detective Comics 35 we were talking about, extremely hard to find sure. in, like, a mid-grade. That's a very rare book in a mid-grade. You usually see it pretty, pretty beat up for whatever reason. It's pretty well-read. So it really, depends on the, it really depends on what it is. But, um, you know, there are some books that I collect that I – pretty rare books that, I, that I've collected that are in the upper sixes and things like that. Um, just because they're super special to me and, and that wanted to get the highest grade possible. Yeah. Now, what would you do if you were looking for some golden age books and you know, you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to find this, this, and this. And Nicholas Cage walks into the room. Fam- <laughs> <laughs> like if he's like, if he's showing up as competition, you mean like at a con? Absolutely. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That would be, that would be rough. I mean, there are, um, you know, there are people in our community, I, I shall say, because they're, they're, you know, it, it, it is a very small community of people who collect these types of books. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a very niche item. And there are some people in our group or our community who are, you know, high rollers, shall we say, that, um, you know, uh, and, and it is very stiff competition between all of us to try and get these books because there aren't that many of them. And that's another thing that kind of gets into the, the, the financial side, if you will, of comic collecting, where, you know, I used to collect, like, the Amazing Spider-Mans and the Fantastic Fours, and, you know, I had a Fantastic Four number one, I had a number five, you know, I've had all those books. And the problem with collecting those books uh, on the financial side, speaking purely, not on the uh, appreciation because they're incredible books, is that there's just a lot of them, yeah. you know? There's thousands of them. And... You know, anytime the market fluctuates, you know, more of them come available. They, they flood the market. People want to sell them, and then the price goes down. With Golden Age books, you're really talking about where there's only maybe 50 copies in the world of a particular title. That's known. You know, that isn't hiding in someone's attic or, you know, storage locker or in the, in the wall in some cases. Mm. So, like, from the financial side, it's another reason I got into it is that these books are extremely rare. I mean, I have... I have books where there's only 12 known copies, you know? Um, so just that rarity and that scarcity just adds a whole other layer to the hobby of, like, trying to get it, but also makes it so much more competitive. So sometimes when a book comes for sale and, like, a high roller in the cage type comes in, sometimes they'll just swoop and, you know, pay a bunch extra for it, you know, and overpay for it just to get it and close us all out. And that happens all the time. And it's funny, too, because I've seen, like, photos of Nicolas Cage at comic conventions. And when you say high roller, he's literally at a Vegas comic convention, which, which adds even more to it. So There you go. I mean, he, yeah, it's like he had such an incredible collection um, back in the 2090s, 2000s, you know, when he was spending a lot of money and then had to sell things. Um, it's funny because I was at a con um, with the Cafe Boys. Uh, we were we were um, out in Charlotte last year for a con, and this dealer had uh, Nick Cage's copy of Punch Comics 12. And Punch Comics 12, if you don't know, is probably one of the most famous crime covers in all of comics. It's a uh, giant skull with, like, gangsters and you know, people firing guns and bodies littered all over the place, and it's an amazing cover, Punch Comics 12. 
and the Nicolas Cage copy of Punch Comics 12 was on sale for like $75,000 or something, <laughs> and it was like a super high grade, and yeah, so... Yeah, he had an incredible collection at one point. And I'm showing Eddie the cover right now. That is the most metal cover I've seen today. Well, that is insane. You know what? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. that's a step close to I thought of right away either uh, DC Weird War Tales or Unknown Soldier, but more Ooh. Weird War than anything. Yeah, yeah. love it's... those Weird Wars. Love the Bronze Age. Uh, yeah, war war stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's you know, very talking... under underappreciated, and uh, it's it's. I have a feeling that that stuff's gonna going to take off someday because there's a lot of really cool covers in there that people haven't discovered yet. I just did a Google search of that Punch Comics number 12 and in the Google image search, you know, you mentioned how it's a small community. It absolutely is. And I just saw, you know, a picture of a close personal acquaintance of the show, uh, Vincent Viz- uh, Zavuzzolo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was Dang like, it. Yep, like, yep, that shows us how, like, small the community is where I know who he is. And I, I actually walked up to him once ago. I'll trade you some young blood in exchange for uh, that one book over there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, Vinny is a good example of, um, of 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 a of a Nick Cage at a con where there's many times where I've shown up five minutes too late, and and he's already going through the stuff that I would have bought, and I, I've definitely lost things watching, you know, things I would have bought be sold to uh, Vincent Zerzolo for sure, <laughs> and I've bought a lot of things from him too, so. Um, he is a good resource, but also a, a competitor as well. And it's funny too, you know. We mentioned like just the whole getting into the comics thing. Like, um, I actually own a Golden Age book, and I got it from uh, this one vendor at Big Apple Con. This was like I think 2016 or 17. A cheapo yep. book, not good condition, but it was you know. Although it, you know, it might be a good looking three. I don't know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> what's it called? I got my hands on a copy of uh, Captain Marvel Comics number 98. And it was specifically because one, I always wanted to get a Golden Age book. It was twenty bucks, and two, it had a little talking Tony, uh, Mr. Tawny on there, and he looked adorable because he was sad. He's like, oh, I can't do it. So I was like, oh, I'm buying That's that. That's cool. But you know, what That's was your cool. what was your first uh, Golden Age? Oh man, that's a good question. Hmm. Probably. Uh, okay, I think my first Golden Age book was an LB Cole cover. Ooh, um, those are good. I love his stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he's someone we also didn't really mention when we were talking about great Golden Age artists. Um, L.B. Cole is mostly known as a cover artist. Again, he did do some interiors, but he's mostly known as a cover artist. And he's got a great, I think it's Fanagraphics, put out that book of all of his, you know, covers. And his stuff is very high contrast, very bold colors, a lot of horror covers. He did some romance stuff, a lot of sci-fi stuff. Incredible cover artist, just literally one of the best and. Um, I think I got into covering, sorry, collecting his stuff first, and I think it was, um, I think it was Ghostly Weird Stories number one twenty one was the first Golden Age book that I got because it was it was like probably one hundred and fifty bucks or something like that when I when I got it, and um, yeah, so then I I collected some LB Cole and then I collected EC and I put together. Um, I pretty much had the whole entire crime suspense stories run that I put together in like three months, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. Um, and I had the entire crime suspense stories run. And uh, I was lucky because that run had increased in value during that time. And I was able to sell it for, for uh, a profit. And then I started to start buying all the timely comic stuff, which is all the, you know, proto Marvel we were talking about earlier, all the Marvel mystery covers, 
all the mystic comic series, some of the Captain Americas. That's the stuff that I love the most is the stuff from like the timely comics and stuff, the early MLJ comics, which is stuff like Pep Comics and Zip Comics. Like those are some of the weirdest, craziest, most insane covers you'll ever see in, in, ever. And so that's the stuff I've been trying to chase down. I think, though, for my part, I have some EC, but they're reprints. I think that may have happened in the 90s or so. Oh, yeah. And I found them in dollar bins. I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. You know, I haven't gotten to them yet like a lot of other things. But I happen to remember, and I was, and I just happen to have my master list with me. I have a comic book from 1959, and I knew it was a Western. Uh, it says it's Lash LaRue Western. And it's uh, oh, my favorite like number WCW wrestler. 71. I never, you know, I saw it somewhere. And maybe five dollars for it or whatever, but but what nice. what I remember about it is I mean, it's in okay shape, and it's in a larger than comic book size bag and board, uh, just oh, cool. just just to keep it good, like in a, let's say a magazine size instead of a, a comic. But they're a little bit bigger than your standard, what the sizes are now. But you want to keep it a little bit more protected if you're not going to put it in that very rigid uh, plastic stuff that you could probably cut yourself on, and uh, that's right. probably my my oldest comic book and you know a lot of people like we mentioned you know it's it's um unrecognized but it's a different generation essentially you know you're, you mm -hmm. have, you have the pre-1961 stuff and then you have after and some people mm -hmm. you know like myself at for some point at some point wasn't even going back into the 60s and if something comes along though that's in moderately good shape i'll i'll give it a shot 20 bucks whatever it is and sure. you know and move from there eddie you're you're uh pushing it by saying 20 let's be real I know, I know you very well. That's pushing. Yeah, well, there's It's all about the condition. Although you know, and, and again, perception and what you saw on the covers and stuff like that. I do remember, uh, other than a She-Hulk cover saying, you know, buy this book or I'll come and rip up your X-Men. And he thought she would. And right. but but the other thing was, and I can't remember. I I think of on a side note, a, a Daredevil issue of what is it? No more, Mister Nice Guy with the gun pointing just off center oh, yeah. towards you. You know, I don't I think you I don't think you do that anymore now with with a cover. But the other thing was, buy this comic or I'll shoot this. I don't know some animal. It might oh, have, yeah. oh National Lampoon. Uh, well, I don't know if it was a lamp. It was. It was the thing. dog. It might have yeah, been a dog. Um, yeah, and I think you kind of steer away from that now too. Although maybe that you'd get away with nowadays the most, like like in the seventies or late sixties when you had a, a a spoof or a not brand Eck or something to that effect. And I'm showing right. Eddie some uh, LB Cole, for example, the uh, oh. Blue Bolt Adventures, which it is like mm -hmm. a uh, it is a stoner's dream with the black light. My God. Yeah, oh. it it really is like yeah, proto black light style he kind of had for a lot of those um, early books. You know, a lot of people talk about Mask Comics One and Mask Comics Two, but some of the some of the some of the uh, you know the uh, most sought after LB Cole covers. Um, he's done lots of just tremendous stuff. I really can't recommend picking up that collection of his work. I have it here. I think it is Fanagraphics. Let me just see. Yeah, it is. Fanagraphics did uh, the World of LB Cole, uh, LB Cole Blacklight, um, and it's it's really amazing because it's just it's some of the best comic covers of the of the golden age you know and it's all collected in a nice just you know coffee table book and it's pretty inexpensive and it's definitely worth picking up um but yeah his stuff is incredible i don't really have that much of his stuff anymore i sort of kind of graduated on to other interests but um so and and, and that happens with comic collecting because you can't afford for with, like like with respect to golden age stuff at least i can't afford to have all of it you know and i want i want all of it um and so uh th there's a lot of rotating of buying and selling that does occur just to be able to 
you know, experience uh, as much as possible. Uh, but it, it is it is impossible to you know it's really tough to hold on to all of these and you know um, just because you know they they do command a lot of premium prices. <laughs> this show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to Patreon.com/slash/TheMarvelists, and on the three dollar tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad free. The five dollar tier gets you our two bonus shows: one, Fantastic Voyage where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier... Pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. And it's cool to see when you look at some of these stories, like there there are some, you know, issues where they'll have like a guy who was known for his work in the Silver Age, but he's getting, you know, early stuff in the Golden Age. And you see yeah. the evolution, like right off the bat, Captain America Comics number one, where, you know, Cap is socking mm-hmm. Hitler in the face. And mm-hmm. you see how he does faces and how they don't look like what he does in the, you know, in the Silver Age, in the Bronze Age. Like I'm going through again uh, the Fourth World stuff and like I'm seeing faces in there. I love like, that stuff. And it's weird to see, like, you know, the 60s, 70s stuff versus what he did in the 40s. But you do see little dribs and drabs of, like, certain stylistic stuff. And it's cool to see mm-hmm. the evolution. Yeah, totally. And, you know, Joe Simon had definitely an influence on, you know, Kirby's style of that era. Uh, he was a, definitely a big part of it. Um, and Joe, Joe Simon is has, you know, Kirby's partner in crime back in the 40s. Joe Simon's style is one of the also one of the most, like, I think, He's underrated in terms of how weird his style is. Um, like if you go back and look at some of the Joe Simon, you know, cover arts he did without Jack Kirby, they're they're pretty weird. Um, but um, yeah, in those early Cap issues too, I can't remember which one it is. It might be ten. I think it's Captain America Comics number ten. There's a splash page in there, like a like a a, a double splash page, I should say, that was very revolutionary at the time. Like. You know, you're seeing, like, a full double-page spread splash, which, you know, I mean, comics are only a few years old at this point, and, you know, people are already starting to figure that out. And so it's really cool to see those early Kirby double-page splashes. And, of course, any Jack Kirby splash page, like single-page splash, in the, you know, Captain America first 10 issues, they're all absolutely incredible, you know. So, and obviously he would be, you know, known for that going forward, especially into the fourth world stuff you know, into the seventies that his stuff, his flashes were incredible. And it's so funny. It's kind of cool to see that like 30 years before that. It's crazy. It's, it's yeah. funny too, to see, uh, you know, certain artists that are golden age guys work in the silver age and you see like the early silver age stuff too. Like, the uh, first uh, guardians of the galaxy appearance. in I think Marvel comics, superheroes number 19, maybe. Yeah. Something like that. And like it's Gene yeah. uh Gene Collan's art and it looks like it's just a leftover Silver Age comic and they're just like, uh, oh, just put it in there. No one will notice, you know, this book is or the story is like forty years old, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people like Gene Colan and George Tufka and all those guys who would be, you know, so much more utilized like in the sixties and the seventies, they were all grinding in the forties too. It's crazy. Um, that they go back that far. Obviously Steve Ditko is kind of another one too. 
like <clears throat> he didn't go back as far back as the 40s, but he, you know, was his first published comic stuff was in the mid 50s, and it's incredible. I mean, I have a couple of his early stuff. Like, uh, uh, if you ever find a copy and you want to own something a little pricey but a little, you know, super badass, is um, he he did this book, um, this comic called A Thing, issue number 15. And it's, I don't know, maybe you've seen it before, but it's got like a giant metallic worm on the cover, like tearing through the city and the city's on fire. And it's amazing. And the whole thing, I think it's from like the mid-50s. I want to say like 54 or something. It's got to be in the first year or two of Steve Ditko. And the whole book is cover to cover of Steve Ditko. All the, all the interiors and the, um, the cover, obviously. And uh, it's just amazing. And you just see his stuff, and it's like, oh, shit, this is a whole other level. I'm going to have to check. Um, I have a couple of, of, of like, coffee table-sized hardcovers of Ditko, and I wonder if that's going to be in there as well. But going back to— It probably to, is. Yeah. It probably is. Going yeah. back to the whole Blacklight idea thing and what Peter showed me and so on, I think of, um, well, po- Blacklight posters that, you know, of course, would be conducive to having that shine on them and everything. And I think of uh, the retail store Spencer's. That may still have. Oh no, not Spencer. Those you know. <laughs> I don't know if any of you know either of you know whether you know these comic type covers were put on posters that you know kids would have bought then or or not. Like with other things I mean, that are. Th- that they should have. I mean, they still should do that. That would be incredible if there was a way. But one of the one of the main travesties of the golden age is that a lot of the art is not saved. Yeah. For example. I was mentioning Alex Schomburg, arguably the best, you know, cover artist of the Golden Age. Most of his art is gone. And there's also famously that story about Carl Burgos, you know, who created the Human Torch, um, also, you know, pioneering comic artist. He, um, when he realized that Marvel was ripping him off with, uh, you know, creating Johnny Storm in the Fantastic Four, um, you know, and kind of he was screwed out of the rights, the legend goes that he took all of his original art in his front lawn and burnt it all. You know, oh, <laughs> so, God. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of stories of this art not surviving. Um, you know, past the, you know, you know, pretty much in a lot of the '40s art not surviving. I mean, you do see EC art comes up all the time for sale, and it's out there and it's been saved. But a lot of the '40s stuff, man, it's very rare to see to find, unfortunately. And I think that's a, another reason why reprints are probably harder. For that stuff than than uh, than most everything else. It always makes me laugh when I hear the story about uh, Steve Ditko finding out that uh, his art was donated to the uh, I think the Museum of uh, History or no the uh, the Smithsonian. Something like or, that, yeah. Or, or, no, Library yeah. of Congress. Library of Congress has the yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, amazing yeah, yeah, Fantasy right. Fifteen and like just his reaction of eh, who gives a shit. It's like yeah, <laughs> right. right. Yeah, yep. But yet, you know, you have a lot of these creators and like one of my other favorite stories too is uh the Harvey Kurtzman Stan Lee story, which uh Tom Scholey is gonna be documenting in his Stan Lee biography. Oh, and, cool. And it's literally he goes, Hey Stan, can I get some of the pages back that I did? And Stan goes, Sure, hold on and he took a big uh grease pen or a pencil and just put a big X on each page and handed him back. Yeah. So it's like Oh, that's yeah. and you you know they don't they didn't realize at the time like the value of some of this stuff. No, no, and, and it's crazy what a lot of this stuff sells for now. I mean, I from time to time will keep my eye on the you know heritage auctions for original art. I'm not really into collecting original art that much because um, I don't know. I mean, it is cool, 
but I am I am I am I'm very much a guy who needs color. You know, like I, I want the color mm-hmm. in the image, and so it's like you know, obviously with the original art, it's all black and white. Um, and you know, like the price of some of the stuff fetches is just it's just insane. But also, you see that you know, how did these people get this art? <laughs> you know, like you kind of know that like uh, this art might not have been acquired in the most you know. <laughs> Uh, honest of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, obviously it's probably changed hands a lot since the, you know, 60s or whatever. Um, or maybe some kid, you know, rang Jack Kirby's doorbell and asked to buy a piece for 50 bucks and he sold it to him. Who knows? But it is, just kind of makes me think, like, hmm, how did this art really get out there? You know, <laughs> this much. So it's, it's kind of a, I don't know, I go back and forth on it sometimes, depending on what it is. Obviously things that are, you know, from the Bronze Age and up, it's probably a little bit different of a story. How do you feel? I, I'm guessing, and I kind of feel the same way you do, Evan, about wanting color versus black and white. And maybe again, that depends on what you knew a character or whatever it was originally saw it as, and uh, you know, along those lines. For me, I think of um, Vampirella, who is better in color, I think. But I, if I recall, started in black and white, so I can appreciate, yeah. and you know, got the first essentials, uh, you know, bound copy or whatever so i can go back to that and forget cool. about trying to collect that that magazine so <laughs> it's attainable it's out there yeah yeah i know but i have to sleep in the same bed as my wife so you know <laughs> gotcha there's that little gotcha. thing gotcha. <laughs> although you know and, and i did eventually come around to i had not gotten on board with um till around i don't know maybe close to 1980 the hulk magazine that was, you know, now in color, I guess, after issue, I'm going to say 10 it was. And eventually I did come across and get to get the whole run, the whole set, because I think the first nine were just black and white. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's cool. depending on the time and, and the circumstances, you know, you go to black and white, you go to color. And, and with our, you know, sub-feature of the Fantastic Voyage, where we're covering the uh, Kirby and Lee run of the Fantastic Four, it's easier for me to have gotten, and I did get the essentials, which are just black and white. So I'm like, all right, I'm resolved to uh, have to mostly read them like this, and here we yeah. go. I'm glad you brought up that, because that, 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 the, the original Fantastic Four run is uh, one of the uh, first runs I, I put together. Um, and, I, and, and, I, and, and then I sold it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, was like, it was like, okay, mission accomplished, and then, um, and then moved on to other things. But... Um, you know, I saw I saw some of the issues. I, I didn't sell all of them. Like some of them, you know, the ones that I just really like that you know, don't have much value, but they're just awesome. Um, but that that run really, I think about two years ago, I really got into, and it's just like rereading it, and appreciating it, and just in, in the context of you know when it came out, and it's just incredible, you know. Um, and like again, I know everyone says it, but once you really get to those. Like in those 40s, once once you get into issue 40-ish, you know, 40, you know, 42, 43, 44, and then it just kind of goes and it just rips all the way through. After that, it's it's, it's great. It's really really amazing. I, I think a, uh, I think a light bulb went off in both Peter and my collective heads and said, "Oh, we have to have Evan on an episode of Fantastic Voyage." Oh sure, I I know them all. I know every there we go. Issue. And it's yeah. it's funny too because you know with the whole black and white thing, I love uh, collecting the uh, black and white books, the uh, Marvel Essentials and DC Showcase. Yeah, they're so cool. I, I'm the odd man out in this group though, but it's like you know I love. They are cool. <laughs> no, 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 for sure. They, they, no, they 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 definitely are cool. And if you're really into the line work and you and, and you want to appreciate that, it's, it's the best way to appreciate it. You know, um, you know for sure. I, I'm just saying 
I think in the context of like if I'm dropping big money on oh, a, yeah. on an original art piece, I almost might want to just have you know the like you know golden age book, like an actual copy of the book versus that. You know that sounds crazy, but you know it's, I, I just love, I just love the printing from back then. It's funny, a uh, friend of the show, uh, Nick Gazin, the one who did the uh, art with Run the Jewels, and uh, he works over also yeah. as well Advice. He has like this yeah, original yeah. art thing, and it's like it's the color thing of a Muppet Baby's uh, comic cover, and like he, <laughs> you know he like showed it to me, and like you see like multi layered stuff, and like it's it's kind of incredible to watch like the technique of how the comic pages are made with stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, the four color process of just the separations and stuff. It is absolutely yeah. insane, and it's like also you look at a lot of the uh, the comics from you know again going back over to the golden age stuff. I love how yeah. they flow, and it's not just mm-hmm. you know like the simplicity of how you know dialogue is constructed, but like it helps with the ten to twelve page story length. To be completely honest, mm-hmm. like you can you yeah. can binge read them. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as like reading you know, the golden age stories, there are some that are dope for sure. Um, I, I, I don't think it gets much better than EC, like in terms of like, you know, I think a lot of the 40 stuff is pretty antiquated. Like sometimes you'll find, like I've, I've, I've read single issues of Captain America that are very readable and still good. Even some of the Captain America issues up into the thirties, like, you know, issue number 30, something with some pretty crazy stories in there. But I don't think it's like as readable as say the Fantastic Four run is. Oh yeah. Um, you know, but EC stuff really holds up and just really is some of the best, you know, in terms of art and story. Like those guys were firing on all cylinders, and it's just really cool that they were so provocative and yet also kind of had this moral center as well. And like we're pushing the envelope, but at the same time making really smart, you know, commentary uh, for the time. And so, like those, like I would. Like, any time I would get an issue of weird science or weird fantasy or, like, you know, the crime and the shock suspense story stuff, like, they're all just so readable. And some of them really freak me out. <laughs> like, there's a couple of uh, stories in, the, you know, those, those early ECs that have incredible twists, you know, because the whole thing is very Twilight Zone. But, it's you know, it's you, when you're reading it, you're like, oh, my God, this is before Twilight Zone. Yeah. You know, this is, like, 10 years mm-hmm. before Twilight Zone sometimes more and you're just like that's crazy to think about in that sort of context you know um that these guys really did kind of create that sort of like you know uh twist ending sort of you know high concept twist ending thing and it's just really cool to see that you know in comics first you know amazing i also say you know it is very hit or miss with a lot of uh cape comics like you know the superhero stuff and yeah one of the ones that i feel like is the most still readable and even like in higher higher numbers because i remember the magical year of unemployment where you know i was reading a lot of uh public domain books and there was the uh captain marvel stuff like i'm reading whiz comics and captain marvel adventures at the same time and they hold up so damn well some of them some of them do that's actually some of the better stuff you know coming from faucet and stuff like um especially the uh <laughs> especially the master comics uh, run there's you know the famous uh, trilogy and I gotta, I want to say it's issue 22 23 24 or it could be 23 24 25 I can't remember if that's somewhere in there but that's the uh, infamous Captain Marvel Jr. versus Captain Nazi <laughs> is the mm. super villain uh, you know straight from the World War II era 
and those are great. Those th- those still hold up, and so yeah, they, they were definitely doing some good stuff over at Fawcett for sure. And in regards to also, you know, I want to go over into talking about some of the projects that you're working on. Obviously, we cannot talk about Dark Side of the Ring season four. Would I love to? Absolutely, but we're not going to. <laughs> soon, <laughs> hopefully soon, hopefully soon. But in regards to your other, you have a podcast, and I was listening a little bit. Of course, you know, as the guy in, who may or may not be in charge of the uh, Does Bret Hart Like Bill Goldberg account, I had to <laughs> listen. <laughs> Believe nice. me, it never changes. The view never changes. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. But nice. The, uh, I listened to the Wrestling With Shadows episode uh, featuring Sammy Brandmuffin, Sam Roberts, and yep. just phenomenal stuff of the podcast, one effing hour. And again, it's not freaking, it's not effing, but you can fill in the blank for that one. Tell the audience yeah. at home how the sh- that show came about and <laughs> what it is. Sure. So one F an hour, as we'll call it on this broadcast, um, is uh, a show that I do with two of my closest movie friends. Because, um, uh, you know, prior to um, comics, prior to um, working in making television shows, I was working in the film world. I, you know, like distributed movies. I grew up obsessed with movies that was like my first real passion along with music of course too but movies were really the thing that i got super super obsessed with and i'm super super snobby about i'm probably the most snobby about movies um and so um anyway so uh me and my friend uh my my friend tom and marcus they used to they used to work at a movie theater back in the day that i would always frequent it was like the coolest place in the entire world um and uh anytime i'd go visit los angeles and so we really hit it off and I just, we'd always go real deep on movies. I feel like we would get super granular on stuff and really hyper-focused and nerdy and specific. And also we would hate on stuff. We'd hate on a lot of similar stuff. And we'd really appreciate similar micro-weird granular details about certain movies that other people just, I don't know, don't really seem to be as occupied by as we are. And so we just started to have these hangs about a couple years ago, and we just talk about movies, we'd watch movies. Uh, we should just do this as a show. We should just hit record when we do this. And so we started doing that, and then the gimmick we came up with for the show is that um, we talk about one movie for one half an hour, and we actually put on a clock timer and uh, that, that, that counts back to zero from one hour. And um, that's very important because we're, all of us are super opinionated, and we love to talk over each other, and we want to you know, get our opinions out there, and we want to have this – you know, we want to have the final say, and we want to point out, get all of our all of our stuff in before the clock runs out. So it adds this extra layer of immediacy about talking <laughs> and analyzing a movie, because we're always kind of fighting with each other to get every detail in. Because we're also, you know, we love to talk and we love uh, to go long on subjects and things like that. So it's a very fun show. Um, we've been doing it now for two years, and um, yeah, we did the Wrestling with Shadows episode, and um, we have a bunch of really amazing stuff coming up. And so we, you know, we. We cover all sorts of stuff, but our sort of prime area is that we talk about a lot of movies from the late 70s and early 80s. I'd say that's our favorite area of film to really talk about. So there's a lot of classics and gems. Uh, we actually do talk mostly about gems, like kind of undiscovered or just rare gems that are really great hidden gem kind of films. That's kind of our bread and butter. 
Now I know it's not some it's it's a hidden gem, but it's a trashy hidden gem. But if you guys ever decide to do an episode on oh I don't know maybe 1989's uh, The Punisher starring the great Dolph Lundgren, <laughs> holla at your boy because my God that is an underappreciated uh, movie. Is sure. it crappy? Yes, but you know there's oh so much specialness about that movie. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, totally. That that, that could be fun. And it's funny because, like, you look at a lot of, uh, you know, I love the idea of the one hour because it also makes what you're saying on the show that much more important because you want to value, you know, the points you want to bring up. Because, you know, if you have a free-flowing conversation that can go like an hour and a half, two hours, whatever, you might forget still afterwards, whereas you're confining it to the one hour, okay, let me get this important fact out or let me get this statement out, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, especially when it gets down to, like, the five minutes left. Mm-hmm. thing it, it gets really brutal with all of us trying to fight to get all the last little sentiments in and then we always at the end of every show we we like find that there's you know so much left on the table that we couldn't said and it's very frustrating that we've given ourselves this weird like constraints for no reason but it also adds to the fun of the show like like for example i remember we picked the, that we were going to do mask you know the movie with Cher and uh, eric stoltz <laughs> and so we were going to go one F an hour on, on mask. And I was like, what are we going to say for an hour? There's no way we're going to be able to actually get to the hour on mask. But lo and behold, could have done two hours on mask. So. And again, that's, that, it's, a, it's a cool concept for a show that, you know, leads to great discussion because, you know, as a fan of the stuff you guys do, like I'm a fan of the uh, Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, was it Confidential where it's you and uh, you guys and uh, Conrad? Yeah, 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 yeah. Love the hell out of that one. And, like, you know, the stories that you guys tell, it's nice to see. And that's why, again, when I saw you here, I'm like, at the uh, convention, I'm like, yeah, I got to get him on the show. I got to figure out a way to get him on the show. So, (laughs) sure. Yeah, anytime, anytime. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, it's definitely fun. It's been a wild experience, you know, making Dark Side of the Ring for the past six years of my life, which is crazy. I never thought, you know, that that's, you know, how long this would be going on for. Originally, we just wanted to make one hour of TV um, about Bruiser Brody. That was what we set out to do, and then it sort of morphed into this whole crazy franchise and, you know, universe <laughs> that <laughs> we just, you know, I mean, we're very appreciative of, um, and, it's, and it's been really awesome uh, just to, to go super deep on, on one subject like wrestling, you know, which is another thing that obviously was a big deal to me. You know, when I was a kid, you know, among comics and music and movies and stuff. So, yeah, but, um, yeah, really excited to talk more about the future of the show and, you know, the next season, you know, when they allow me to. Well, I was going to say, connecting Dark Side of the Ring over to comic books, one of my personal favorite episodes is the uh, Bruiser Brody episode, which was the pilot for you guys. And before uh, the... Back in March of 2020, this man was a guest at uh, the big event, which was an absolute disaster of a show where we actually stood outside two weeks before COVID broke out <laughs> and we were in the cold for two hours. It was a wonderful time. Great job, guys. But anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> one of the guests was somebody that was an interview subject on there, and he is a fantastic artist. And, you know, I wanted to meet him because I wanted to see him afterwards. But I want to know, in your opinion, do you feel that acclaimed foot fetishist Tony Atlas could have been a great comic book artist? Totally. Actually, I actually believe that Tony Atlas could have been a great power comics artist. Oh, my God. Um, because, you know, his, his art is amazing. I actually remember, you know, uh, seeing Tony's art um, kind of before 
we started filming with them, I would go to, like, I think I probably went to one of those conventions of the big event. I probably went to, like, 2016, I went to big event, and that might have been the first time I ever met Tony in person. Because I was courting, I was sort of courting Tony and Dutch Mantel and, you know, Abdul the Butcher and those guys, you know, because we didn't have the financing yet to do the show. But, you know, you kind of have to do this weird thing where you got to tread water and keep everybody, like, interested in the project in case it does get financed and greenlit. And, you know, then they, they, they take that journey with you. So it was very tough. It was almost about a year of treading water, uh, you know, before we could get the green light. And uh, I remember going to those conventions and seeing Tony and seeing, like, his art and just being like, holy crap, this is power comics, you know, because it's very outsider-y art. It's like, you know, the, the perspective is wonky, the, the proportion is off-kilter, and it's just amazing. And then also on top of that, he does stipple work, you know. He's just doing, like, Sharpie dots is how he makes his, his forms and his shapes and stuff, and it's, it's incredible. So... It's funny that you say that because I was really enamored by his art and thought it was so cool. I bought pieces from him, and then when it came time to actually produce the episode, um, it was in my it was it was definitely something on my on my wish list was to have him draw a portrait of Bruiser Brody in his style that we would film, um, you know, for the episode, and you actually do see it in the episode. Um, and then I also, you know, made sure to say, hey, well, you know, I'm going to buy this, <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to finance this, the show's not financing, and I want to buy this piece from you, so um, I still have it, and it hangs up in my office today, and it's framed, and it's the, it's the Bruiser Brody portrait from that episode, and it's kind of one of my favorite pieces of original art that I have, is that is that, that Tony drawing, but yes, you're 100% right, like, I would have loved to have read a power comic uh, drawn by Tony Ellis. And before we end up wrapping this episode up, I do want to ask you about Power Comics. But before we get into the Power Comics uh, discussion, I also wanted to just bring up real quick with Dark Side of the Ring, I have one episode I would love to see more than anything, and that is sure. King of the Ring 1995 and what would have happened if Tio Savio had won the King of the Ring because he should have won. Wow. It. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's very specific. Um, well, okay. In all honesty, that's kind of my wilderness years of, of, of like, WWF, you know, is the, is the 95, 90, 93 to 5 range is, is when I wasn't really watching and I don't know a ton about. Like, I'd have to go back to that King of the Ring. Don't worry, no but one I'm, else was. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I wasn't sure if I missed some catastrophic event in that, but I was going to say that um, – that uh, my some of my favorite episodes and, and, and ones that I'm always yearning to do because I think they're the most fun to make are the episodes that are based on events, you know, and based around like, uh, you know, one day or like here's one event or a series of events around one thing. I would love to do um, more of those. And they're hard to find, like, you know, one event that can really carry a full hour of television. And I will, as a teaser, say that there is one that we are doing uh, for the new season that is, uh, I guess we'll say, on the, you know, wrestling event related, which is always fun. Barry Horowitz winning at SummerSlam 1995? That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Oh, Barry Horowitz, yeah, that'd be awesome. But um, in regard, I was going to say, you know, with uh, Dark Side of the Ring as well, like the most power comics episode other than the FMW one is the uh, UWF one. Because, like, yeah. I remember when I was, like, seeing, like, the announcements, like, the rumors leaking out online, like, here's what's going to be discussed this season. And I remember so many people were just like, UWF, who gives a shit? And I'm like, 
I read Foley's book, and I can't wait to see the cocaine scene recreated. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it's funny because that that was my reaction to it when it was first pitched to me. And it was first pitched to me to do the Herb Abrams episode or the UWF episode uh, before we even had the green light for the show. It was like kind of putting together like a pitch of what a full season of, you know, this show would look like alongside, you know, the Brody episode. Um, a good friend of mine, Sean Oliver, had, had recommended like, you got to look into the Herb Abrams story because it's really crazy and you got to look into the way he died. And it's a fascinating, compelling, wild, crazy roller coaster ride. And I just, I, for whatever reason, I didn't. I didn't look hard enough. I didn't look deep enough in terms of like trying to figure figure out because the story was pretty. It, it was not out there, and it was very. Uh, you had to like, you know, you had, you had to sort of dig for it. And I wish I had at the time, but maybe I'm glad I didn't because you know it, it, maybe we weren't ready for it at that time because you know season two came around and he basically said like you know man you effed up man you should have been looking. You, you should have been doing that story. You should have done it. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. We're going to do it. And so we finally took the journey. And it was super fun because it was really like the first episode we ever did for the show where we knew absolutely nothing going into it, you know, and just really were like almost journalists, like just getting out there into the field and just trying to get to the answer. And it was so fun because every turn was so was crazier than the last and yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite episodes of the show. Going back over to Power Comics, like first off, again before we go, what is Power Comics? Because like our audience, like they know the mainstream Marvel stuff, but they really don't know the like. I, you know, I'm not I'm speaking for them, but you know, it's like it's not that well known the like the no. indie stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. It's very under, very unloved, underappreciated, underbelly of comics. But um, basically, it started um, back in about 2010. It started with uh, a really good friend of mine, Zach Carlson, who is a comic collector, um, you know, big Jack, Jack Kirby fan and stuff. And he had sort of stumbled across um, New York City Outlaws. It was actually kind of the first gateway drug, I would say. There's a comic book series called New York City Outlaws that's self-published in the 80s, very reminiscent of, like, the Warriors, that you know, like the movie from 1979. It's, like, street vigilantes from the different New York boroughs and very influenced by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like the original, you know, Kevin Eastman, Stephen Laird stuff. And um, so he showed me that comic series, and I was like, this is amazing because the artwork was crude. You know, it was self-published. Like, it's, like if you wanted to buy more issues, you had to write care of, you know, the artist at like a diner in Manhattan. You know, it was just very just DIY is the best way to explain it because after Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles took off, there was a huge, you know, sort of do-it-yourself, self-published movement where a lot of people were saying, well, if they can do it and make millions, we could do it uh, too, you know. <laughs> and so you saw a lot of indie, and I mean very micro-indie publishers, um, getting uh, distribution through all the major comic distributors at the time. And so anyway, that caused a big influx of these very low-budget, shall we say, comics where – you know, the art is extremely crude. The writing is extremely crude. Sometimes they're written and drawn by 15-year-old people. You know, very, very weird stuff. And they basically got out there into the world. They probably sold a couple hundred copies here and there. And now they kind of exist in the quarter bins across America. And so during that time when I saw New York City Outlaws, and I was trying to find them myself back when you could find them for a quarter. Now you can't. 
now they're much more than a quarter, but um, in the process of searching for New York City Outlaws and a few other titles, I would come across these other books like John Tarr or Dreamweaver, you know, or some of these other titles that were just looked so insane and crazy and weird and singular. And it was like, here's the raw ambition and dreams of like one person back in 1984, five, you know, that somehow is here. And, and I would look up online and they were rare. You couldn't buy it off eBay. They were very rare. So I started to collect all these kind of misfit comics um, that I sort of have now appreciated kind of as outsider art because it's all comics. Power Comics is comics created by untrained artists and untrained writers. You know, it's that sort of outsider quality. So I really started to get into it and champion it. It started as a Tumblr in like 2010, it's a very 2010 thing to do, start a Tumblr. And so I just would kind of post the pictures of the comics and the insides, and people seemed to really like it, and it kind of took off. And then it morphed into a YouTube channel um, a few years ago um, and, and an Instagram uh, account as well, too. And, um, and then we started to review the books, and we started to, like, you know, go through the books, kind of similar to Cartoon Escape but just with these particular books. And then um, about a year ago, I got approached by Floating World Comics, an indie, pu- an indie publisher in Portland, Oregon, who wanted to, because, you know, we started to befriend all the creators, all the guys who had made these comics 30-plus years ago. We found where they live. We talked to them on the phone. We have them on the show. And so then, um, you know, we sort of had the idea that what if we republish some of these books <laughs> 30 years, 35 years later, um, you know, because they are so rare and you can't go out to the store and buy them or you can't find them in a quarter bin or on eBay or whatever. And so we started to do that. And so, you know, we're kind of putting out a few titles a year. We've actually already put out four releases, which is pretty cool. Um, and so you can get those on floatingworldcomics.com or you can not, you know, probably find links to it on our, off our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash powercomics or Instagram at power underscore comics. And it's cool. It's been really fun to like actually publish comics on top of everything else that I'm doing. <laughs> but it's, it's been really, it's been really cool to kind of like, you know, meet the people behind these weird books that we found in Dollar Bin, you know, ten plus years ago. So that's that's essentially what Power Comics is, and we just kind of made it our own, you know, kind of just weird niche fascination for many years now. It's funny because you know you, the interview you had done on uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe talking about season I think it was three at the time or no season two of uh, right. of uh, Dark Side and like yeah. you mentioned Koch's comics as the place that you found a lot of this and I remember like yep. you know after and I told Eddie I was going he goes oh that place I mentioned to you and I go Eddie I'll be completely honest I forgot you mentioned that to me yeah, I've been and, there twice <laughs> at least and you know it was on the recommendation of you to go and like your immediate reaction was you're going to the castle and I'm just like yes I am (laughs) and then I go I almost knocked over a ladder so you know it's it's one of those places like I remember I also mentioned to him in there I go I want to get some John Tar and he like he sounded like Obi-Wan Kenobi that's a name I haven't heard in a long time yeah yeah and yeah yeah yep yep and I just remember he's like yeah we have none of that left and I'm like oh man I want to buy some yeah, sorry, my fault. Yeah, yeah, it's all I mean, good. <laughs> ba- yeah, ba- basically, it was probably in 2010 or somewhere 2011, going to Kosh Comics and like just seeing it and just you know, for those who've never seen it, it's a giant, very stinky warehouse in South Brooklyn <laughs> that has a bunch of you know eBay stock. You know, the guy sells on eBay, Joseph Koch, shout out, and um, you know he's got tons of 
back issue, back catalog issue, you know, or whatever back catalog or back issue, huge stuff. And we would go digging through there, and I was just like, man, this guy, you know, and 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 the organization of the place is it's very it's a lot of disarray. Like it's there's no rhyme or reason to really where all the comics are unless you're him, right? And he knows so where I would everything ask is. Him, yeah, he knows where everything is. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this guy out, and nobody knew what John Tar was back then. No, not a single person. And and I basically was like, do you have this comic book John Tar? And he'd be like, oh, John Tar, sure, over here. And like he'd show me over to the John Tar section. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, holy crap, this is madness. And then from then on, we just would literally spend weekend after weekend after weekend literally going through the entire store from top to bottom. And, and it took us months, but we did it. And that's how we actually found a lot of these like OG power comics uh, were you know, from that. And sometimes if there were like five of them, we'd buy them all because they're a dollar you know, and, and then just have them and trade them to other people across the world who had other stuff. And that's, that's how we built the, the library, so to speak. <laughs> I remember, uh, I think it was WWE's return to uh, New York City post-COVID. And I remember I contacted a friend of the show, Jason Ayers, and I said, hey, you're going to be down here. You want to go to Brooklyn with me to a comic shop? So like, he literally celebrated the return of wrestling in New York City by going to Koch's Comics with me. And I'm just like, it was a amazing thing to see. And like, He's going into like, oh my god! Like he was fascinated by the whole place, like right, yeah. right down to the two store cats. I love the store cats. Oh yeah, the store cats. That you know, yeah, it's definitely a very cat smelling environment in there, and rats too. There's definitely got to be rats in there for sure. And it's funny so, because like you know yeah, they have a lot of charm. Well, the cats have to work to be there. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're not doing a good job either. That's why the rats are there. But okay. It, it is funny, yeah. though, like, seeing some of the books that they have, like, multiples of. Like, I, when, uh, when Cartoonist Kayfabe did a video on untold stories of Spider-Man, uh, the annual with uh, Mike Allred's art, I was like, there's no way I'm going to find this. And then I go in there, and they proceeded to have, like, a gigantic stack of them in one of the long boxes. I'm like, well, I, I found it already. That was, a, that was a quick search. Yeah, they do have they, they do have that. And, and for people who are who maybe heard of New York City Outlaws or – or the, the artist Ken Landgraf, who was a local New York City, you know, indie, cool, just amazing artist back in the 80s, 70s and 80s. He worked for Marvel for a brief period of time, actually, in the late 70s, I believe. Um, but uh, he, he self-published a, a series called Starfighters, which is incredible. It was great magazine-sized, you know, anthology, you know, with you know, 12-page stories and that kind of a thing. They, they, they published in the 80s, and there's about five of them. And I know that Koch has a handful of each of them. So you can go down there and probably get the whole run for, you know, hundred bucks or something. And it's well worth it. So well, he does have like big stock in like random things. I'll be releasing this episode after I go to Koch's comics. So that won't <laughs> beat the rush. Yeah. 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 Maybe they're, maybe they're already gone. Who knows? Sir. I hope not. Cause I'm looking at the art. That is some fantastic looking art. Yeah. It's great. So Evan, before we go, thank you again for doing the program today. Yes. Thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate it. And how can people get a hold of you on social media? How can people watch what you do? And how can people listen to you? Oh, man, there's a lot of that to get to. But I'll make it simple. Um, you can follow me at Evan Husney um, on uh, Instagram and Twitter is basically where I am. Mostly Instagram, though, uh, is where you'll find me. And that in my profile there has links to uh, One F an Hour we talked about, my film podcast and also um, uh, Power Comics. 
if you're into the weird DIY 80s comic books. And then, of course, Dark Side of the Ring is returning this year uh, with a new season, so stay tuned for that. That'll be on Vice TV. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's probably the quickest, uh, the quick and dirty way of doing it. I mean, you know, you also tell people to check out uh, Tales from the Territories, the uh, fantastic series that you actually got to uh, produce with Black Adam himself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Tales from the Territories uh, was, a, was a show we had out late last year. Um, that is, I believe, don't quote me, but I think it's on Hulu now. It might, might or coming soon uh, to Hulu, but you can also get it on all the, uh, you know, Amazons and Apple, Apple TV and all that stuff for the world. But, yeah, Tales from the Territories. Uh, was a fun little side project we did um, with uh, Dwayne Johnson and his Seven Bucks Productions crew. And that was fun, man, just kind of making a show, kind of a no-frills show, just about crazy stories from, you know, the sort of pre-WWF days of, of, of wrestling in the 70s and 80s. And I honestly, like, I know uh, the cartoonist Kayfabe guys have talked about it in the past, like, Dark Side of the Ring works as, you know, perfect background noise as, you know, like, drawing and working on stuff. And I was going through my sketchbook, just drawing as much stuff as humanly possible. And yeah, Tales from the Territories was fantastic background noise for that. Like I'm going through oh, the uh, vice I could see that. I it was see that. so good. That's good. That's good. I could see that because it's kind of like a podcast brought to life. It's kind of the vibe of it. Especially yeah. that Kaufman sure. one, man. That Kaufman one was fantastic. You guys knocked. Thank as, you. As a diehard Andy Kaufman fan, yeah, that was some primo stuff. A lot stuff. of fun. A lot of fun. It was a lot of fun doing that. I'm really happy to see him in the Hall of Fame now too. Um, I, I'm. I hope we played a little tiny little piece of part in that. It was just a teeny bit, just a teeny little piece of that. I had such a cheese doodle smile on my face when I saw the announcement. That was like that was yeah. a fantastic day to hear that. Yeah, for sure. Especially Absolutely. watching. Were you at the uh, real quick before we wrap this one up? Were you at the uh, Andy Kaufman exhibit over at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens? No, oh, it was like, so I good. That. that sounds great, though. It was uh, Andy's brother and uh, sister, and they were talking about you know his career. They showed stuff like My Breakfast with Blassie. And my personal right. favorite thing was, like, they have this little tiki room kind of thing where, like, they show uh, screenings and stuff in there, like a private thing in the side next to the Vanna White thing. And um, you go in there, and they're playing, like, random uh, talk show appearances. And my personal favorite mm. Andy Kaufman bit next to the Andy Kaufman talk show and has been corner was um, when he's sitting uh, on a talk show talking, and he goes, I'm here to talk about uh, this, but also I've been elected for my uh, school uh, reunion, high school reunion, to set up everything. And I have all these people that we need their addresses. So if you have the addresses or know how to get in touch with them, contact us over here at this phone number or mailing address. But also, since I want to entertain you guys, I'm going to be dancing to the uh, twist by Chubby Checker. And as he's dancing to the twist and all the names and all the people's names are just going by on the side of the screen as he's doing the twist. It's fantastic. (laughs) That's awesome. That's amazing. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Evan Huffman. And I'm Eddie Wilson, Excelsior.